Amen. Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we'll meet a man named Siren the, uh, Simon the Cyrenian. And uh, we are at the point in the passion story. It's Friday, what we call Good Friday. Jesus has been condemned to death. Uh, Pontius Pilate having him scourged. We went over that last week. He was scourged and uh, hoping maybe that that would satisfy the crowd and and Pilate would let him go, but of course the, the crowd demanded that he be crucified. And so we left off with verse 20 last week when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. So now we come to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the execution, you could say, of Jesus Christ. They're very familiar with crucifixion. We not so much... Uh, So we'll go into some of these details as we go through. We'll walk step by step through this very important day. All four gospel writers give accounts of of the happenings of this time period. Uh, So I won't go into all of what each gospel writer brings. I would suggest you take some time at some point and you either get a a, a parallel Bible or a Bible that sort of puts all of the the gospels together side by side and you can read all the differences there. Uh, I'll go through some of them and we'll talk about some other points, but you really have to bring all four together to get the whole picture. But as we talk about crucifixion and Jesus' crucifixion, what I, what I think is important for us to think about as we get into that is that um, this idea of crucifixion is so important to what I would call the, the New Testament theology of living. Like, how do we live as Christians? The crucifixion is mentioned over and over and over again through the New Testament epistles. This act, devoid of the resurrection, this Jesus was just another martyr dying for a failed cause. But the resurrection gives impact to the crucifixion. And Jesus lives for us and, and did live for us as an example. And that's brought out throughout the New Testament. And so uh, I think that this morning when, we, when I got up to come to church this morning, it was raining and, and maybe that's why you came to the 11 o'clock service because it was so rainy this morning. You said, wow, let's sleep in a little bit. We'll go to the later service. But I'm sure there are those that chose to just sleep in all together and blow church off today. Why? Because it's raining. And I'll tell you, the challenge that we face as the church is we love to talk about and sing about the love of God. And, and I, I do, I do. I love to talk and sing about the forgiveness of God. Absolutely. But what we don't like to talk about is the crucifixion. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about it as it relates to Jesus dying for our sins, but never realizing, not making the connection that the crucified life is for us. That that's what we're called to live. Uh, Paul says in, in uh, Philippians that I, I want to know, he says, I want to know Christ. And, I, and that's my wish too. Is I, I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul says. And we all say, amen, pastor. We want to know him in the power of his resurrection. But then Paul says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And the challenge for us as we're called to live this New, New Testament Christian life, as we're called to, to walk in the power of God, you'll never, never, never experience it, the power of God in your life, until you've been willing to suffer with him and to, be, to die daily to yourself. That's... It's, it's been well documented and well said. You never, no crown without a cross. So it was such an important truth to some of the New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul comes to, or writes to Corinth, he said, When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Uh, Paul didn't come trying to preach a fancy sermon or trying to have a great oration and, and a very dramatic presentation. He said, I, I, that stuff is fine, but that's not what I'm about. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is everything you need to know. And it applies to every aspect of your life. You can come in for family counseling, you can come in for marriage counseling, you can come in for job coaching, whatever it is that you want. Everything, every aspect of your life is going to go back to this thing behind me, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not just that he was crucified, but that I was crucified with him. Paul wrote to the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ. Now he wasn't really crucified with Christ because Paul 
you know, lived on after that, which he makes a note of, but he was living the crucified life. He's, Paul would say, I die daily. Now, he doesn't die physically daily, but he dies to himself daily, to his goals, his dreams, his desires, and he takes up his cross. Every day, that's a decision you make. When you get up out of bed this morning, you say, Lord, help me die to myself today. That'll change your marriage. That'll change your work life. That'll change your relationships. That'll change everything. Lord, help me die to myself today. So Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live, according to, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I don't know if you can say that about your life or not. And, and maybe if you can't, you can say, well, I want to say that about my life. So what does all this mean? How does all this connect? Well, that's why we have before us the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Before we actually get into his crucifixion, though, we meet this man again, as I, as I mentioned, verse 21. They compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father, father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So they compel this man. His name is Simon. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover. He comes from about 800 miles away. It says he's a Cyrenian. Try to look that up on the map. I don't think you'll find it. It's modern-day Libya in North Africa. So because of Alexander the Great, you remember him. He was this great military leader and conquered most of the known earth at the time and took Greek culture all around the world. And uh, because of that, there was then a Jewish population there living in Egypt. And Simon was no doubt a, a Jew and coming. Who knows if he'd ever made this trip before. This could be the first time in his life where he actually gets to come to the Passover. And so he's, he's from North Africa. He's introduced here in the Bible in a way that most people aren't. He's introduced as the father of Alexander and Rufus. A couple of boys, a couple of his, his sons. And now we... You never see anybody introduced that way. Maybe somebody's introduced as the son of somebody. You know, Simon bar Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, but never the father of. So that means Alexander and Rufus must be pretty well-known people. By the time Mark writes his gospel, writing to largely a Roman population, Alexander and Rufus must be pretty popular. Well, how do we know? Where are they from? What, what are they all about? We can't say for sure, but if you read the book of Acts... In Acts chapter 11, talks about the church at Antioch. And we talk about these people from si this, this region um, of Libya that were there in the church. And a man named Simon that was there. He's also called Simeon uh, uh, in Acts chapter 13 as part of the leadership in the church at Antioch. So what possibly has happened is that this man, Simon, which is Simeon and Simon is like Steve and Stephen, same name. He has gone on after this event to get saved. And he becomes a leader in the church in Antioch. His children, his wife, all get saved. And when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 16, you see him say, hey, greet Rufus. And his mother and my mother also. So evidently that uh, Simon's wife became also a well-known Christian in the church and ministered, had a huge ministry to the apostle Paul. And all this started because one day this Jewish man was on his way to celebrate the Passover and his life got interrupted. You ever have your life get interrupted? If you're, you know, some, that's, how it usually, that's how it started for me. I was just minding my own business and God interrupted my life. Who does he think he is to interrupt my life? I've got plans. I've got a five-year plan. I've got a 10-year plan. I've got things to do. I know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And God stepped in and he interrupted my life. And he asked me to take up my cross and follow him. In the same way, Simon, here he's, again, he's coming into the city. It's 8 a.m., roughly 8 o'clock in the morning. Remember, Jesus is going to be on the cross by 9 a.m. on Friday morning, Good Friday morning. It's around 8 a.m. I guess Simon didn't want to fight traffic because there's like hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. So he's trying to get there early, take care of buying his sacrifice. He didn't want to wait in long lines, and you know how that is. So he, he's going in early, and he's just kind of minding his own business. And this procession is coming out of the city, and there's a, there's a, a group of people surrounded. And as he goes over to, hey, what's going on? What's all the hubbub over here? And he feels the, the Roman spear on his shoulder. The Romans had the uh, right to do that. It was called impressment. Impressment. The Roman soldier could 
lay his spear on the shoulder of a Jewish person, likely a man, and compel them to carry their backpack for a mile. You remember Matthew chapter 5. If someone asks you to go one mile with him, go two. That's a reference to the same thing. The Roman soldier's backpack would probably weigh around 100 pounds. And this was the height of humiliation because you were now carrying the burden for the very people that were oppressing you. You want to tell me they weren't upset about that. But that that was part of their law. They could do that. So in that same way, Simon is compelled to carry not a backpack, but a cross. Can you imagine how he felt? I mean, again, had the day all planned out and now this interruption. I got to carry this cross. I mean, it's, and it's bloody and it's nasty. And he was going to be unclean because he's now going to have contact with blood. And he was about to celebrate. So now he's going to have to deal with that. Ah, what a hassle. What a nightmare. And I can only imagine him grumbling to himself as he's being compelled to carry the cross. But something changes as he begins to carry this cross. You see, once they begin to lead him out, they would have taken Jesus after he'd been scourged, his back opened, his, his possibly some of his viscera exposed. I mean, the scourging we went over last week, horrible situation. He's, he's not slept all night. He's not eaten all night. He's not had anything to drink all night. He's had a lot of blood loss. He's dehydrated. His heart is is in trouble. His whole body is shutting down. And he's extremely weak, barely able to stand. And it was common that the person who was being crucified would be responsible to carry not the whole cross like you'd see in pictures, just what's called the patibulum, the top piece on their shoulders. They would lay him down, uh, put the piece of wood, the log, 100-pound log on the ground, tie the, the criminal to it, then stand him up with this, this log on his back, and then march him to the site of crucifixion. Four Roman soldiers assigned to each cross to help get the cross in place and make sure that the, the criminal is, is uh, making his way through the city. The centurion in charge would carry a sign in front. This is all matters of history. Would carry a sign in front of the criminal with the accusation uh, of what the, what the charges were against. Jesus has said, King of the Jews. That was his charge. And so they would march through the city of the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, as we call it now. And uh, evidently, Jesus is too weak physically to carry this 100-pound log on his back and is holding up the procession. So the centurion, ready to get things going, get things on the road, he finds Simon and compels him to carry it. Carry it uh, to, all the way to to Calvary, all the way to Golgotha. And I don't think, we don't know, but I'm guessing that, um, that Simon stuck around. I mean, do you think he went back into the city, said, okay, my job is done. Uh, I'm going to go back to the city and finish my task. Or do you think he stayed there? I, I think he stayed. I think he watched and listened and, and thought and considered. He was going to buy a lamb for sacrifice. And that day he came face to face with the lamb who was being sacrificed. In the same place, by the way, Mount Moriah, if you read Genesis chapter 22, where Isaac was was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. Same place, Mount Moriah, where Isaac uh, says, hey dad, uh, we got the wood for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? In that same spot, Abraham says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Where's the wood? And Isaac carrying the wood. We we have the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Isaac carrying the wood on his back. Jesus carrying the cross on his back. Simon now helping him to the place. I think Simon stuck around. I think that's why he got saved. I think when Simon got saved, changed his whole family. Husbands, when you get saved, when you really get saved, I mean, when you see, when you come face to face with the crucified Jesus Christ, you can't leave unchanged. I mean, we see it. The best we can do is imagine it. Or if you've seen the passion, Maybe that helps. But I can imagine for Simon to see what he saw, the impact that had on his life. He begins to ask questions, begins to ask around, begins to find information, and he realizes as he listens to the things, the seven things Jesus says from the cross. He's up there on a cross and he says, Father, forgive them. People don't say that stuff. And it changed his life forever. And because of that, again, his salvation affected his wife, and we assume from church history, affected his children. No, no superficial relationship with Christ will do that. Matter of fact, I, I meet people, sometimes I'll meet people that are very uh, instigating 
against Christians or very upset with Christians. Oh, I've been to church and grumble, 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 murmur, 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 rah, rah, rah. And they just want to, you know, claws come out. And I'm like, and I usually ask the question, so who was a pastor, your dad or your grandfather? Because usually if someone's that negative about church, it's because they've had a bad situation in their home. Someone who claimed to be a Christian, but actually lived contrary. And they said, what, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want anything to do with it. So moms, dads, please be honest with yourself. Be honest with your children. If you're a Christian, then live it. If you're not a Christian, then don't pretend to be one. Make up your mind. Do that, do that for the sake of your kids. Do that for the sake of your children and for yourself, for your own heart. Uh, but because you know, I've just seen such bad things, such confusion. Then we got to unravel all that stuff and say, well, that's not really how it's supposed to work. Look, we all make mistakes, right? No kids are raised by perfect parents. Would we agree on that? No, I don't, you know, so it's not about being a perfect parent. But part of being a Christian is saying, forgive me for, for the wrongs I've done. Forgive, and, and in real time, you know, as you're going through this thing and not pretending to be perfect, not expecting them to be perfect when you never were yourself, when you were that age and, and all of those things. But you say, look, son, daughter, this, is, this is the word of God. And I try to live according to it. And, and you get to, to, you get to make that choice for yourself. So Simon's whole family affected by this. Verse 22 Wow, we've got to make some time here. That's one verse. Thanks for coming. Did I say 12 years to the book of Revelation? Verse 22, And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. A Golgotha is the Hebrew, uh, maybe you've known it as Calvary. Where does that come from? That's the Latin word for skull. So some of the teenagers in here would like to know that since we are Calvary Chapel, what does that make us? That means you, you attend Skull Chapel. Tell me that's not cool. Yeah, we, like, what church do you go to? I go to Skull Chapel. <laughs> we, we visit when we go to Jerusalem, when we take our Israel trip. Uh, two potential locations. We don't know for sure exactly where this spot was. Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the traditional site. A place called Gordon's Calvary is the, the more, I think, accepted uh, Protestant church site. Uh, I've been to both places. Uh, general Gordon, a British general, looked out of his window as he was staying in Jerusalem and uh, saw this place where it looked like two eyes and a, and a nose and a mouth in the side of a hill. And as he began to investigate, they uncovered a cistern nearby and also a tomb in an ancient place of worship, all within you know, within 100 yards of each other, not even that, probably 50, 60 yards of each other. You picture these things being so far away, the place of crucifixion, very close to the place of burial. Joseph of Arimathea didn't have to drag Jesus' body 20 miles across town. It's right there, and it fits everything the Gospel of John says. So some say it's this, some say it's that. doesn't really matter. Uh, Mark tells us it's a place called Calvary, the place of the skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. This is a narcotic drink. The women of Jerusalem would do this as an act of mercy for the criminals being crucified. Crucifixion was um, the most horrific human invention uh, in ever conceived in the world, I believe. It was meant to be a slow and painful and prolonged death. It's meant to be a deterrent to other people. You're supposed to see this person being crucified and go, whatever they did, I ain't doing it. I mean, I don't want to end up like that. So it's sort of a, you know, a little motivation to, to walk the straight and narrow. And they wouldn't be crucified on a hill far away, all alone. You've seen the pictures and you've seen the three crosses on the hill. Get that stuff. Don't let greeting cards determine your theology. The, Jesus was crucified between the two criminals right on a main crossroads. Now it's a bus station. If, it's, if you go with Gordon's Calvary, there's a bus station there now. But it was a main crossroads, the inscription written in three languages. People, commerce happening, travel happening, people coming by. How else could they talk to him and tease him and mock him on the cross if he wasn't only but two or three feet off the ground? That's as far. I mean, we picture him like way up there on the cross. His feet were probably two to three feet off the ground. Very easy to interact with the people on the cross and to see that and to be face to face with that. So they offer this to these the women would offer this narcotic drink, but Jesus did not take it. He was going to take every bit of pain and suffering 
that, that is connected to sin, we take sin so casually. Well, I'll just do it. God will forgive me. Do you know what it costs to forgive that sin? I mean, when you know the value of something, you tend to treat it better, right? Like when you got your car and it was new, no one was allowed to touch it. Don't breathe on it. Don't bring, definitely don't bring any food in it. But then, you know, it's your, your, your young 20-year-old guy and then you have kids and you get a minivan, right? And then the minivan, once you have two, three, four kids, there's car seats everywhere. There's year-old crumbs in the seats and sippy cups spilled everywhere. And, but when that thing was new, you, you valued it, you know, and you know, nobody touched it. It was expensive and I'm going to keep it nice. The Bible says we weren't purchased with gold or silver or precious stones, that our lives were purchased with the precious blood. With our, our lives cost a life. And so do we sin? Yes, we do. None of us in here is perfect. I hope not purposefully. If you do that, then you've got other issues. But we do. We're human beings, and we do stumble into sin. We fall into sin. We're not perfect. But boy, uh, I don't take it casually in my life. I don't just say, well, God forgives. You know, what... what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Well, I'll just go sin because God forgives and I'll just play fast and loose with this thing. Look what it costs. Every bit of that pain, every one of those 40 plus lashes with that scorpion tail and the brass pellets and the glass, the sh- sh- all of that on Christ. He became your sin so that you could become his righteousness. And we get up on Sunday morning and say, ah, it's raining, I'm not going to go to church. How are you going to suffer for him in anything hard if you can't go to church in the rain? I mean, really? And, and you can make that choice. You know, we're, we, don't, we, you know, we don't take attendance here. You can choose to get up and, not, and you're not saved by church attendance. You're saved by grace for sure. But if you never, if you run from suffering your whole life, you'll never experience the resurrected life. If you are never willing to do something hard, to make a sacrifice in your, real, in your daily life. Remember Simon carrying that cross? He was compelled to do it. You and I, it's willing. It's, it's a choice to take up the cross. It's a choice to be a disciple of Jesus. If, if you were going to say, I'm a Christian. I was at Cup of Joe the other day. I love hanging out at Cup of Joe. I mean, like all the, that's where the real county seat is. That's at Cup of Joe. That's where all the politics happens, all the meetings happen, you know, I don't, everybody's meeting there. And so I love to have conversations with people. And so I got in a conversation with a one lovely woman, a couple of women that I had met there, uh, older women, and this, I always ask the question, so where do you go to church? I just make assumptions. And I don't ask them if they do, I ask where they go. And then they say, well, I don't really go anywhere. So that begins a conversation. Just do whatever you can to make conversation with people. If I don't like making conversation, we'll learn to like it. Suffer a little for Christ. I got to talk to people? Yeah. You tell them about the movie you saw. I saw this great movie. I mean, it's rated R and people get killed everywhere. But talk about life and truth and goodness and righteousness. I, I don't like to talk to people. And so we start, where do you go to church? Well, I went years ago, and you know, the minute you go back to years ago, I know you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble because you know, don't go back to years ago. Where do you go now? What, do you, what are you involved with? Well, we used to go. My kids do. Then, then it was well, all that our kids did. And okay, so I see where we're going with this. Um, then, well, would you call yourself a Christian? Oh, absolutely. I was like, okay. Now the conversation gets more intense. You, you don't do anything that looks Christian. Well, I just worship the Lord on the, in, in the trees and the you know, and all around the, the woods. I think you see God in the woods. And you do, you do see Romans 1. You see God in the woods. The problem is in the woods, there's no unlovable people to love. You need to come to church for that. It's where all the unlovable people are. We're all the people that know we're unlovable. And we say, please love us because no one else will love us. That's what you need. The one biggest need in your life, need in your life is you need hateful people so you can show them the love of Christ, the, the, the love that Christ had for you when you were unlovable and hateful. That's what you need. We run from unlovable people. No, love, run to unlovable people. The more ornery, the better. Because God is more glorified when I love more un- or- ornery and unlovable people. 
That's, I mean, and then those unlovable people, just like you were, they see how much God's love penetrates through their unlovableness. And they think, how could, a, how could your God love me? I'm looking at Tim and just thinking the story he just shared at men's prayer and, and shared with me at the soup kitchen about a guy that he met. I won't tell the whole story on you, but a guy that he met, we met at the soup kitchen. This guy had a satanic tattoo across his whole chest. Makeup. I mean, just, you just look at him and you go, I want to know what's going on inside of you. Something's going on inside. And Tim bridged the gap, loved him, ministered to him, cared for him genuinely in the name of Christ. And did he, he gave his life to Christ. You led him to Christ at the bus station. To gave him, got him a ticket back. Uh, I'm just, I'm stealing all your thunder, Tim. It's a great story. I'm so sorry. It's a great story. What's that? It's God. Yeah, yeah, it's God's story. And, um, and that's, that's what we need. Unless they'll respond. Anyway, I'm way, this is crucifixion. That's where we were. Back to verse 24. They gave him wine. He did not drink. In verse 24, when they crucified him, they divided his garments, uh, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. You know, his, his sandals, his robe. His, he had a, a linen gown on, a one-piece gown with a, a hole for the head to come through. And they probably, you know, that was one of the things that was even more valuable. So they're, they're dividing up his clothes and, and casting lots for them. And, and that's a, just a quote from ver, uh, Psalm 22. We'll read that later on if we ever get there. Verse 23, now it was the third hour. Again, what time, folks? 9 a.m. And they crucified him. Re- time is reckoned in the Gospel of Mark from 6 a.m. As, as zero hour. So six, three hours after six is 9 a.m. And there, and they crucified him. And Mark just says it and moves on. Three words, they crucified him. And that's it. But that's all in that culture that was needed because they knew exactly what crucifixion was about. They knew exactly how it worked. If something, if you have to make a crucial decision, or if you ever have experienced excruciating pain, the, the root word of those is cruce, which is Latin for cross. A crucial decision is a crossroads. And excruciating pain means out of the cross. It's excruciating. And so the cross is very significant to them, but we don't know it as well. We're not familiar with it as much. Josephus said it is the most pitiable of all deaths. The man, Jesus, would have been put on the cross there, uh, the, the cross piece, carried it with Simeon's help or Simon's help down to the place of crucifixion. There they would lay it back down. Again, along the way, the, the, uh, uh, the person, the criminal, marched through the streets with the uh, sign. The, the, it's called the titulus, where we get title, the title or the accusation. His was the king of the Jews. Mark writes that next. The inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. And then once they put him up on the cross, uh, then they would nail that uh, accusation above his head. So again, you were meant to go by and see, what did he do? I don't want to do that. This is what he's guilty of. Once they nailed you, or, or once they tied you to the cross, then on the ground they would take the nails, the Roman soldiers would drive the nails, not through the palm of the hand, which is often pictured in there. If that, they, They've done all kinds of research on this, and uh, both historical and medical, and if you were to try to hold yourself up with nails, as if you'd want to do this, nails that were through the the metatarsal bones there. It's just skin there on out, right? It would just pull right through the skin and you'd fall off the cross. That would never do for the Romans. This has got to last a long time and be very painful. So instead they chose, anatomically speaking, to drive those nails through a little hole in your, you have a lot of small bones in your wrist and there is a a gap between those bones where uh, the nerve passes through. I believe it's the median nerve. And, and blood vessels pass through that hole because they can't pass through bone directly. So they would go through that hole or that foramen or that space, and it's into that space where they would drive that nail. So as soon as that nail, I can only imagine as the Roman soldier held that and raised that hammer, just wincing, prepared for what, if you were even still conscious at the time, and Jesus was. And as that first spike went through, all of a sudden you'd feel your hand go numb as that nerve was probably severed, it would uh, begin to bleed profusely because the, the blood vessels in there would also be affected. 
by that. Both hands would be nailed. And then the four soldiers would lift that cross uh, up onto the top of the upright that was already planted at the spot. They reused these crosses. Wood was, wood was scarce, and so they would reuse. they take that back down, remove the nails, and then use it for the next criminal to be crucified. So, so the cross had already, no, no doubt, blood stains on it uh, from previous usage. They would put them up there. Then once the criminal was up on the cross, the hands nailed into place, possibly tied and, and nailed there. Then the feet would be bent at the knees, and not uh, one over the other in front, but histor- history and archaeology tell us that... Uh, sandwiching the board between them, one on each side, then a nail driven through the very thick and dense heel bone. The calcaneus, I believe it's called. Driven there. The one archaeological artifact they have is where they drove a nail. They have the, they have the nail, the spike, in through the bone, and then it's bent coming out. And they've discovered this, archaeologists have, probably because as they drove the nail in, it hit a knot in the wood and bent and came out. So the, when, the nail, when the feet were, uh, were nailed, the knees bent, now the criminal left to hang there on the cross, the only way he would be able to breathe would be by actually pushing up, painfully pushing up against the nails in the feet and pulling up with the arms just enough to grab a breath. Criminals that died on the cross didn't die from, from pain or blood loss. Typically, they would, dry, they would die from asphyxiation, inability to breathe. Because when you're hanging there, all your weight hanging down, again, so fatigued, so already spent, already uh, in shock, now just trying to, to get a breath, and the lungs being able to just draw a little bit and then sink back down, and that would go on for days. I think, if I remember correctly, the shortest record of crucifixion death time was 36 hours. If the Romans wanted to speed it up, they would break the legs of the uh, person on the cross because then that would disable them from being able to actually push up and they would die faster. So this is the beauty of crucifixion. Uh, Actually, I say that in just the horror of crucifixion. Verse 27 says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So again, notice, so the scripture was fulfilled. Jesus is right in the center of God's will for his life. And there's been some kickback about that line that sometimes Christians will give, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, God's wonderful plan for your life is that you die to yourself and follow him. That's God's wonderful plan for your life. And it is wonderful, but maybe not in the way you think. Because, see, the Bible says if you love your life, if you love your life in this world, well, I got my plans, I got my dreams, I got my hopes, I got my direction, and I want to go and do my thing, you can do that. Like so many have and so many will. You can live your life apart from God. You can accomplish things. You can build businesses. You can build empires. You can do all that without God. But if that's the life you want, that's the life you keep when you die. You, you lose your life. But if you hate your life in this world, in other words, if you're willing to give it up, if you go, well, I'm willing to give it up, then you can actually have a new life, and then that new life connected to Christ you keep for eternity. You live eternally. He was numbered with the transgressors. Scripture was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, he bore the sin of many, is what the next line says in Isaiah. Verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him. Isn't that nice of them? Wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You know, you want to talk about rubbing salt in a wound. I mean, there he is. Isn't enough enough? But the tongue, the words, just hurtful words, even taking the the nails and driving them even deeper into his heart. Hey, if you're the son of God, get down from the cross. Go on. And just mocking him. And the hard part of that is, is he knew he could. He knew he could. Could have got down any minute he wanted. You guys know, and it's been well said, it wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was his love for me. It was his love for you. He could have called. He told Peter, I can call down. Put your sword away. Put that little thing away. We don't need that. We can call down legions of angels to fight on our behalf. No problem. 
This is, a, a Roman army is no difficulty. So th- this was not an issue, but he was there, and he stayed there. He, all of that, all of that he endured. Now, I'm going to read you a verse that is a verse. You, know, you have those verses that you come across in the Bible. If you read your Bible, you come across verses, and you go, whoa, that, that hurts. I mean, not hurts in a bad way, but, you know, hurts in a good way. When you read it, you go, wow, that's tough. And it's in Second Peter. I've shared this. I share this regularly with people because it's so powerful and it's so challenging. Peter writes uh, about living this crucified life. He says, this is commendable. This is First uh, Peter chapter 2. If because of conscience toward God, not toward men, but if because if you have a consciousness and a conscience toward God, you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. He says that's commendable. If you endure grief, and suffer wrongfully. Usually when we suffer wrongfully, we are hornet mad. I mean, let me at them. I'm getting vengeance. I'm demanding my rights. And I'm not saying, you know, in cases you shouldn't demand your rights, but I'm just saying that there's some times where it's out of your control. And you just, you know, your boss is hard on you, or this person is mad at you, or what, and there's nothing you can do about it. So what do I do? You know, do I just, just, you know, do I get in? Do I blow up? Do I explode inside? What do I do? Well, Peter says, if, if you endure grief and you suffer wrongfully, it's, it's commendable. That's commendable. For what credit is it? This is great. He says, what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Hey, I mean, if you're, if you're working and you're slacking off, or if you just made this huge, you just blew it royally at work, and your boss comes down on you, like, don't think you deserve a medal for taking it patiently when you get upset, when you get in trouble. Yeah, I deserve that. The problem is, is what Peter says next, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. I mean, there your boss is, or there's your teacher is. It was the other kid who threw the spitball. It was the other kid who made the comment, and the teacher thought it was you, and there you are, just, and you're just, she's laying into you, or he's laying into you, and you, you just, the more you try to defend yourself, the worse it gets. Have you found that out? The more you try to justify, the more you try to explain, the person's not listening, they're not going to get it. Jesus is on the cross. They're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. He can't explain to them, I'm dying for you. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm becoming sin so that you can become righteousness. I'm being forsaken by my Father so you can be reconnected and reconciled to him. How are you going to explain that? as he's on the cross. Because I'd have been like, man, let me off this cross. I'll give you a piece of my mind and piece of heaven's mind. So he says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Why? Because for to this you were called. It doesn't say, well, it just happens sometimes. It's just one of those things you got to deal with. He says, actually, Christians, he says, this is what you're called to. Not only do you need unlovable people to love, but sometimes those unlovable people, well, they're unlovable for a reason. They aren't going to roll over and say, oh, thank you so much for all the ministry you've done to me and for my family. No, they're going to take it and they're going to run. Or they're going to take it and they're just going to accuse you and it's not going to end well for you. And you're going to be thrown under the bus and, and you're going to go, I'm never doing ministry again. I'm never helping anybody else again if it, if it burns like that. Mother Teresa said, you love until it hurts. And pretty soon there's no more hurt, only love. And Peter says, But to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was ever found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But instead he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? the one who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree, on the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So get the picture that Peter's trying to say. Uh, Paul says it this way, that we fill up in our bodies the suffering of what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What was lacking in the affliction of Christ I mean, what could possibly, what could I possibly contribute to, to my salvation? That's not what he's saying. What was lacking in the afflictions of Christ is that your neighbor, that unlovable person, they weren't there to see Christ do it. They weren't there to see what it looks like when a person suffers 
and takes it patiently for the sake of someone else's salvation. But guess what? God says, not only do you need unlovable people to love, but it's okay if they make you suffer a little bit and you take it because then they're going to see what Christ is really like. They're going to see Christ in you. As you suffer on their behalf, they're going to give a picture, get a picture of the gospel from your life. So those are the things you need. That's God's wonderful plan for your life. And sometimes it takes years to break through those barriers of past abuses and past hurts and past rejection. And then you just become another person that rejects them. Or you labor with them. You set boundaries and you be wise and all those things. But sometimes you just got to stick it out with people and love them. The Bible says love suffers long and is kind. We like love to suffer a little bit and complain. The Bible says love suffers long and is kind. That's the, you know, I'm not there yet. I ain't there yet. But I want to be there. We are never getting through this. Likewise, the chief priest, verse 31, also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others himself he cannot save. And he could have saved. In one sense, he could not have saved another. Had he saved himself, we would have all been lost. So he became lost so we could be found. He, and that, again, how, ugh, that would have, he saved others. This is what they're saying. Ah, he saved other people. Now let's see if he can even save himself. Just mocking him. That would have burned me up. Man, I don't know if you've ever been bullied, but wow, that would have burned me. Let the Christ, King of the Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. That's what a lot of people say, by the way. If I could only see this, I could only see that miracle, then I'll believe. And they, these guys were just mocking Eh, they wouldn't have believed anyway. They saw the miracles and didn't believe. Now, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, Steve finally finished his sermon. No. Uh, this is noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 p.m., the sun goes out. People speculate, was this an eclipse? It was a full moon. It was a Passover. This wasn't an eclipse. Uh, Nobody really knows. You can try to explain it away scientifically. Uh, anytime in the Bible we read about darkness or the sun and the moon being darkened, it speaks of judgment. And so judgment is being taken out on Christ. The sun goes out. It's the middle of the day. And all the people standing around look at each other like going, what is going on? The God just took the, the little, you know, just flicked the switch. Boop, sun goes out. How does that happen? I don't know. But darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. Why? Because light was being rejected. If you reject light in your life, what are you left with? Darkness. Light came into the world. Uh, the darkness didn't, didn't accept it because people love their dark deeds better. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Again, a quote from Psalm 22. There's seven things Jesus says from the cross. I won't mention them all just for the sake of time. We don't have time to do that. Um, the, this is, the, I think, the uh, fourth statement from the cross that Mark mentions. He, they think he's crying out for Elijah. Look at verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. So they, they're misunderstanding. He's saying, Eloi, Eloi, which means, my God, my God. And either because Psalm 22 tells us his, he was so dehydrated, he couldn't even talk. Maybe if you've ever had to do public speaking and you get in front of people and you're so nervous and like all the saliva runs into your feet and your hands and you can't talk. Your hands are sweating and your mouth is dry and uh, his, he was dehydrated. And so he couldn't even, even talk. And so he gets, uh, they offer him sour wine, put it on a reed and he, and he takes a drink in, in verse uh, 36. Again, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first verse there. Fantastic Psalm. Uh, if you marked it, read it later. There's some amazing stuff there that I just don't have time to get into. Um, but as Christ was taking on himself all of the sin, God reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so you could be a new creation. God, uh, Jesus, feeling the the distance that sin causes in relationship with God. And if you're living in sin this morning, 
If you're living in sin in your life, uh, sexual sin, uh, filled with pride, whatever it might be, addiction, whatever sin you might, and you know it. There's some sins you got, you don't even know they're there yet. That's an onion that has to get peeled more. But uh, you know it. You know you're living in it. Those things serve to separate you from God. Christ has done everything to reconcile you to God. But if you live in sin, if you, if you continue in that sin, it will keep you distant from God. And God wants to draw you close. You're never safer. You're never more joyful than when you are close to God. You are meant to be in relationship with God. And sin mars that relationship. Sin blocks that relationship, not on God's end, but on yours. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him uh, to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah, so they think he's calling out for Elijah to come. The soldiers give him this common sour wine. It's like Gatorade for them. He says seven things from the cross. Seven statements from the cross, and, and I need to... And I'll just run through them quickly for you. The first thing he says from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second thing, today, he says to the, to the insurrectionist who is next to him, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. To Mary, his mother, and John at the foot of the cross, he says, Mother, behold your son. John is now going to take care of Mary in Jesus' absence. He's looking out for his mom. That's a great Mother's Day sermon too. That would be awesome for next week. He says here, the only one that Mark records, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I thirst. Again, needing to have his tongue moistened so he can cry out the next statement from the cross, it is finished. All these crying out with a loud voice. Not some weak voice. Crying out with a loud voice, he says, it is, it is finished. And then, as we read here, verse 37, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed His last. What was the last thing He cried out? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, verse 5. It means to deposit for safekeeping. No one took Jesus' life. He didn't die of asphyxiation. He didn't fight for His life for three, four days. When it was finished, I like, I like someone who knows when it's done. When it's finished, you go home. When the work is done, you go home. Jesus had come to seek and save that which was lost. He came to reconcile the world to God. He came to set up the new covenant, all these things. And when he finished it, right here, he said, it's finished. And then he gave up his spirit. He gave up the ghost, as we say. And uh, very peacefully, he laid down his head and he died, his human body. So when the centurion, oh, I'm sorry, verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less and of Joses, and uh, Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there were some, the disciples, they'd scattered. There were some women there. John had come there bringing some of these women, bringing Mary, uh, Jesus' mother there to the cross. So we'll have to stop there. Uh, we will do Joseph of Arimathea and the burial uh, next week. So as we close, I invite the praise team up. I, again, as I told you last week, you know, one of the things, the great opportunity I have is to spend a lot of time in God's Word preparing. And just thinking more about the crucifixion in my own life and um, a chance just for you to consider what it really means to take up your cross, to deny yourself. This is God is not going to compel you into service for Him. He's not going to force you. Simon, forced to carry Jesus' cross. God, not going to force you to carry your own. But it's a choice you make. It's a choice for truth. It's a choice for life because in that dying to yourself, this is what, this is what Jesus says next, and you know it well. If you love your life, you'll lose it. 
I mean, if you just was holding so dearly onto your dreams and your goals and you got your five-year plan and you, God, I was meeting with a guy, you know that we're involved with a Calvary Chapel church plant in Goochland. Did you know that? It's like really new. We've been involved with this guy. He's a pastor in Goochland and he's, he's, he's just compelled by Calvary Chapel, just loves Calvary Chapel, loves verse by verse Bible teaching, planning a Calvary Chapel in Goochland. And we were talking about his, you know, he's telling me about his five-year plan, his 10-year plan and I was just thinking, man, I'm not that organized. God, I'm glad we have a God who is uh, who can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. That's why I don't mind making plans, but I'm very careful because God has exceeded every plan I've ever made. And He took my life and He and He picked me up from going this direction. And he turned me around. He put me that direction, and uh, and and off I went. And here I sit. Because one day I said, All right, Lord, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll deny myself. I'll deny what I want to do with my life. You know, maybe you're in school for something. Maybe you think you're going to be a doctor. Think you're going to be a lawyer. Think you're going to be this or that thing. And maybe you will. Maybe you'll be one of those for the Lord. But maybe the Lord, maybe the Lord wants you to be an accountant. Maybe the Lord, you know, because we were, we were laughing about this yesterday. It's like, you know, kids go to school, they go to college, they major in something, and they do something completely different. It's like whatever you want to do with your life, major in something else in college. I don't know why that works that way, but you go to college, you study this, and then you end up doing that. How does that work? Uh, especially for us as Christians, man. So if you love your life and you want to keep it, you make your plans. You go your way. You do that thing. Have at it. Go for it. But when you're... You, when, when your ambitions fall short, when you find out that all the things you looked for and longed for were never satisfied, when you find found out that uh, none of that stuff was very fulfilling, none of it's wrong in and of itself, you will never be more fulfilled. I'm not going to use the word happy. Joyful. And never more fulfilled than when you connect with God's will for your life. Guaranteed. Never more fulfilled. When you lose your life, take up your cross and live for Him. When you, when you have the fellowship of sufferings, of sacrifice, then you will experience the resurrected life. There is no other way. Amen? Amen.